0: Uh, But let's pray and let's ask for God's help as we come uh, to his word together. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks, and you're the God whose word is powerful. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, give us ears that hear, hearts that long to be changed, that you would focus us, grow us, and work for your glory now. Please use me and my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should. And we pray that you would renew our minds and conform our lives to be more like Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, After having dinner and watching the footy with a mate uh, just this past week, I was getting ready to leave when he drops the bombshell uh, news that his wife is pregnant with their first child. It was about 11pm, standing in front of my car in the freezing cold. We chatted about many things, but most of all, how nervous, even scared he was. We discussed how terrifying it is and how helpless we feel to have no control over the health of a child in the womb. But this was furthered for him in particular as his wife has some pre-existing health issues that make her a high-risk pregnancy. His conclusion to all of this was that it's just a matter of chance and luck and they'll wait and see. As I drove away, I had that sinking feeling that I think I've often had, that it was a wasted opportunity. I could have so easily spoken about my own hope and trust in Jesus, that in a world where there is brokenness and helplessness, to know a king who is not just great and powerful, but generous and kind and in control but it was cold it was late I was very tired and nothing was said but as I reflected on this I actually think that this is really a bit of a, a pattern for myself and I imagine lots of us are familiar with it opportunity wasted excuses then followed to make myself feel better and a general pessimism that even if i had spoken up it probably wouldn't have gone well anyway when we are honest about evangelism we often know that this is us i think what would have i have even said what would have been the right thing to say how would he have reacted surely it's just a little bit unhelpful and maybe insensitive given how this particular area can be so fearful and wouldn't it just make things worse if it didn't go well? If you're a follower of Jesus, I imagine that you've felt and thought similar things many times. It's why the encouragement of the Empowered Evangelism course has been so good for us, whether you're starting it, you're in the middle of it, or you're finished. It's been timely and helpful. But it's also why the book of Acts is so good for us as we see the honest evangelism of the early church. In Acts 13 we get this amazing insight into Paul's first missionary journey and there is so much for us to learn from their example. What they do, what they say and how people respond helps us to be honest with ourselves about what we should be doing and saying and expect as we proclaim Jesus too until he comes. And much of what Luke records at the beginning of Paul's ministry is going to be a pattern throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and it's going to challenge and encourage us to be honest about our evangelism, the fears we have, the excuses we make, the lies we believe, or just our lack of confidence in God. And in these opening verses of our passage tonight, Luke gives us the geography And we see Paul seeking an opportunity and then taking it with both hands. Last week in 13, 1 to 12, we saw Barnabas and Paul set apart by the Holy Spirit for mission and off they went to the island of Cyprus. Now in verse 13, they leave the island from Paphos, sailing to Perga, which is in modern day Turkey. And things get off to a somewhat shaky start. We see here in verse 13 that John Mark leaves them to return to Jerusalem. But we're given no details about why, just that he left. And there's going to be a very big conflict at the end of chapter 15 when they reunite in Jerusalem, and Paul describes this departure as a desertion. And although we don't know the details, it's not a good start as the team is cut by a third, But they continue on their way in verse 14. From Perga they go to Pisidian Antioch, and it's called this to distinguish it from Syrian Antioch, where they were back in chapter 11. And so they make the 160-kilometer journey northeast across the mountains, and as they arrive in Antioch they go straight to the synagogue. Verse 14. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now, Whether it's by their reputation or even their clothing, Paul and Barnabas are known to be Jewish rabbis, uh, and they're acknowledged by the synagogue and given the opportunity to give an exhortation following the reading of Scripture. And then what they, what Paul says in response to that opportunity goes all the way until verse 41, and this is how he responds to the opportunity. He takes it to proclaim Jesus with both hands. And what Luke records for us here I think is probably not the whole thing, but a focused sample of what preaching Christ looked like for Paul. It's no wonder that Paul then comes to write in Colossians 4 that we must be wise in how we act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity to have conversations about Jesus. Peter calls us to always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. And so we should long that those missed opportunities we have will start to shrink away as we are both equipped and prepared. We must be actively ready to speak, even eager to take the opportunities when they come. Not just knowing what to say, but actually captivated by what we have to say, that our eagerness for others to know Jesus and for him to be glorified outweighs our love of comfort or even our apathy And so, following the reading from the Law and the Prophets, Paul stands up, verse 16, and appeals to his audience to listen up, and he takes them on this whirlwind summary of the first half of the Old Testament. And what he does here is really clever. He begins on common ground that all the Jews in the synagogue would know and agree with. But it also lays a foundation for his major focus, which will be that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has established and promised and paul's selected history of israel focuses supremely on god's initiative Uh, look with me in verses 17 to 18 he goes from genesis 12 to the end of exodus god chose our ancestors the patriarchs the nation of israel like abraham he made the people prosper during their time in egypt displaying his power he then led them out of that nation He highlights not just God's initiative, but also his grace and kindness. For about 40 years, God endured or put up with Israel's conduct, and boy, did he have to in the wilderness. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave them land. That's the book of Joshua. In verse 20, God gives them judges and the prophet Samuel. In verse 21, he then gives them King Saul as they ask and then God makes David king in verse 22, a man after God's own heart. And he seems particularly keen to get to David as so much of the Old, Testament, uh, the Old Testament's expectations for a Messiah and king who would save center on him. And we are to expect at this point in the synagogue lots of nodding, you know, that kind of good Presbyterian grunt of affirmation as Paul runs through their shared history. But then in verse 23, he comes to the main point that the Old Testament survey has been leading to. God's initiative and provision is seen primarily in Jesus. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. History points to Jesus, but history is, but Jesus is the event of history. And Paul gives them the historical background and context for this claim. He begins with John the Baptist in verses 24 and 25, who prepared the way for Jesus' coming. I then notice verse 26. He appeals to them again to really pay attention and to see the logical flow of God's actions. God has a history of saving and providing for his people And Jesus is not only the continuation of that reality, he is the main event. And although we could have spoken of Jesus' teaching and miracles, he just goes straight to his death and resurrection. And if we can learn anything from Paul's sermon in this passage, it's that our evangelism needs to get to and center on Jesus. Read with me verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. For the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Notice how Paul beautifully weaves together history and theology, story and meaning. The people of Jerusalem rejected Jesus, crucified the one they'd found to be innocent. Yet verse 29, they carried out all that was written about him. And Paul takes them to the cross and to the resurrection. He's rejected by man but vindicated vindicated by God who raised him from the dead, which was both seen, witnessed by many. Christ crucified is the heart of what Paul wants them to get. And notice the whole structure of the sermon leads to this. He, he lays the Old Testament groundwork in verses 16 to 25 then goes to Jesus in 26 to 31, then returns to the Old Testament in 32 to 37 to show how Jesus, the risen king, is the fulfillment of God's promises and so much greater than David. Having surveyed the first half of the Old Testament, he now quotes the second half. He goes to the Psalms and to the prophets to show that God really has fulfilled his plans and promises in Jesus. Verse 32, we tell you good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. Their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Uh, He then quotes Isaiah 55 in verse 34, Psalm 16 in verse 35, before concluding in verses 36 to 37 that all these promises about David's great son have found their fulfillment in Jesus. It's all about him. But what does that teach us about evangelism? How often have you found yourself in a Jewish synagogue and being asked to give an exhortation? And surely any form of kind of Old Testament survey that we might share would just leave people lost and confused. And there is a sense, I think, in which that might be true. In fact, one of the great things we see in Acts is how Peter or Paul can actually adapt or change their message for their audience. When speaking to the non-Jews in Athens in Acts 17, Paul is very different in his content and approach. And while many we speak with might not know the Old Testament, that is certainly not an excuse for us not to know it or to be able to show how Jesus really is, the fulfillment of God's promises. And so can you. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And so do you read, know, value the Old Testament so that you could show how it points to Jesus? And this is really helpful for us and for the people we speak with. Grounding Jesus' saving work in the Old Testament shows us that the message of the gospel is not a novelty or invention or the wishful thinking of some desperate disciples, but the fulfilment of God's long-standing plan that was both promised and foreshadowed. And this is so helpful for us. Because so many today find the idea completely laughable, right? The only way that I can be right with the eternal, all-knowing God is to trust in a first-century Jew who was executed in Palestine by his own people. His blood is the only way I can be right with God. For many, this is just barbaric, or at least unnecessary. And so the Old Testament then forms this beautiful interpretive grid, a tapestry of events and promises and examples that shape our understanding of how we can know God, be made right with him. Concepts of atonement and forgiveness, priest and sacrifice, holiness, cleansing, they all come together through the Old Testament as God promised and then find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so our understanding of Jesus is not some random or arbitrary idea or wishful thinking. It is consistent with what God has spoken, modelled and promised, then fulfilled in real history. So I hope, I long that you can see how knowing this is not just vital for our own understanding, but even in how we will proclaim him. That although those we speak to might have varying levels of understanding of biblical concepts, as we proclaim Jesus, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in God's word. Because although we are jumping ahead in the passage, look at verse 44. Why is it that the people gather to hear? It's not to hear Paul. Or what do they honor in verse 48? It's the word of the Lord. And so are you ready to clearly speak of Jesus with the opportunities you get? Are you working hard to have a biblically rich understanding of Jesus' life, death and resurrection that you can then clearly and faithfully point others to him? And are you seeking to grow in this area? Uh, Colin Marshall, he helpfully points out that one of the reasons we struggle to talk to unbelievers about Jesus is that we haven't established good habits of talking to other believers about Jesus. And I think it's so true. And so are you making the most of the other Christians that God has put in your life by having focused, helpful conversations about Jesus, speaking the truth in love? We must be ready to speak of Jesus with our confidence in God's word. That's the first thing I think Paul's message in Acts 13 teaches us. And although I think it should go without saying, secondly, his sermon shows us that we must get to and center on Jesus, especially his death and resurrection, God's plans and purposes for the world. Our only hope in life and death center on him. And so proclaiming Jesus is what we should be eager to do. Not debating or arguing, not trying to persuade people of moral standpoints or the value of Christian ethics, although that might have its place. Evangelism is about speaking of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Paul says, He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Colossians 1. To the Corinthians, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because it's how people respond to Jesus that is of central concern. We see this as Paul lays the groundwork from the Old Testament, then proclaims fulfillment in Jesus, then goes back to defend it from the Old Testament. He then brings them down to the application which I think is probably the part of evangelism we are often worst at. The goal of proclaiming Jesus is never just a knowledge download. Jesus is the real and living saviour we can know and enjoy forever. But this is the part I think we stumble at most because asking people to respond so often is where rejection or what we fear becomes so tangible. But we do a great disservice to the people we proclaim Jesus to if we don't apply the gospel for them. Verse 38, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Do you notice there's a real warmth and urgency as Paul speaks? My friends, I want you to know this. Again, this cause for reflection of our conversations with our unbelieving friends is this authentic and real, that Jesus is so important that we genuinely long for them to know and trust him. And Paul is so clear that it's only by believing in Jesus, verse 39, that there is forgiveness and justification notice in doing this he goes straight to the heart of the confusion and the issue that still continues today it's the view that religion is for the good people but in reality we are not and we can never be good enough for god we are captive verse 39 we have to be set free We're actually enslaved to the power and penalty of sin. We are deserving of God's judgment. And we're unable to change this through our own efforts. Not even God's good law could help us because we were unwilling, we are unwilling to follow it perfectly. It's why Paul said that this is a message of salvation, verse 26. This is good news, verse 32 that through Jesus alone there is forgiveness, that our debt is paid as he died in our place and took God's judgment on himself, that there is justification, that is, we are now declared righteous in God's sight through what Jesus has done for us. This is the absolute beauty of Jesus. Christianity is not man seeking God but God condescending to seek man and bring us to himself. It means we don't have to pretend that we're better than we really are or compare ourselves to others so we can feel good enough, nor do we have to diminish God's standards to match our own. And making sure people understand that a response is required is an act of love because the choice that the gospel lays out is real. Jesus calls for faith and repentance. And in reality, anything less is a rejection of God's grace and provision through Jesus with real implications. It's why Paul urges them to listen and to respond to this generous offer. But he doesn't leave it short as he clarifies it with a warning. Verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. The quote here is from Habakkuk chapter 1, where God promised his people that he was going to bring judgment to them through a invading nation, the Babylonians. And the people scoffed. They thought it was too fanciful, too crazy to be real. Yet we know it did happen. To reject the generous offer of the just God is to invite and deserve his judgment, and it will certainly come. And so, as we speak of Jesus, we should not leave people with the impression that we are simply putting before them a philosophical worldview that they can either take or leave but good news from the holy God to whom we will all give an account and who must be taken seriously. Now that all might sound a little bit direct and confrontational for you and you think it will just surely put people off. But this is the reality of the gospel and we should not shy away from telling people the truth out of love. And it's why Acts is so helpful for us as it clarifies what our expectations should be as we proclaim Jesus. Uh, In verses 42 to 52, we see a pattern of two responses, salvation and opposition. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are initially given opportunity, more opportunity to speak in verse 42. And in verse 43, many who follow them are urged to continue in the grace of God. That is, they're converted and now being encouraged to keep going. Then on the following Sabbath and next Saturday, they preach again, verse 44, and the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. It's such an exciting and encouraging picture, right? Well, yes, but such a strong response sends certain Jews into a jealous rage and their opposition begins with verbal abuse in verse 45. But it steps up from there, verse 50. The opposition then turns political as the Jewish leaders get some women of high standing to influence the people and stir up persecution which then leads to a physical persecution as they are driven out of the region. We need to have right expectations that sometimes proclaiming Jesus honestly and clearly will be costly. We need to honestly reflect on this because so often I think we hold off speaking about Jesus until we're sure it will go well. Yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of Christ that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. We must expect this. God has promised that we will see both salvation and opposition. Now, this doesn't make the cost easier. Uh, Being shamed, insulted and mocked is never fun. Uh, Not to mention the change in relationship or loss of friendship we might have to endure because we speak up. But right expectations remind us that silence isn't loving. But especially right expectations protect us from the lies we tell ourselves. How often do we hold off speaking until we're sure it's not going to be too awkward or we're sure it's going to go well? Or even persuade ourselves that it's more loving not to speak and maintaining connection is better as ultimately it's going to be our friendship that wins them to Jesus, not our words. But the biggest lie that wanting to have a cost-free evangelism is that it puts all the focus on us. If I can just get the words right at the right time, I'm sure it'll go well. But it's God who saves, not us. And more than that, Acts clearly shows us that opposition to the gospel is never actually an issue for God to keep saving people. In fact, the gospel flourishes in the midst of persecution and opposition. Uh, As the the Jews heap their verbal abuse at Paul and Barnabas, they reply to them boldly, verse 46, We had to speak to you the word of God first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Uh, That God chose Israel as his covenant people, and promise them a Saviour and Messiah remains a foundational truth of the gospel. Paul says he had to speak the word of God to them first. And now by turning to the Gentiles, he doesn't mean that he is abandoning the Jews altogether, or that he's going to create groups of converted Jews and converted Gentiles. In the very next chapter, as Paul goes to Iconium, uh, he heads straight to the synagogue in verse One, and the church is always made up of Jew and Gentile. And so evangelism must continue to have a priority of Jews for us as Christians. But Paul is being clear that their rejection of the gospel will not hinder its spread as they now turn their attention to the Gentiles and the rest of the book of Acts is going to focus on this mission. And Paul shows us that as he turns to the Gentiles, it's not an afterthought or plan B. In verse 47, he quotes Isaiah 49. He says, This is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, in the context of Isaiah, God is promising that his servant will be the light to the Gentiles. And you should have a footnote in your English Bible telling you that the you in the quote is singular. It's talking about one person. And Luke 2 tells us that Jesus fulfills this promise. He is the light to the Gentiles that will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But by quoting this verse, Paul is saying that his evangelism is sharing in the shining of that light to the Gentiles as he proclaims Jesus. God has promised that Christ will bring salvation to the ends of the earth, having a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he does this through the gospel, both through Paul and still through us. This is made so clear for us by the response in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Christ is proclaimed, yes, there's opposition, but God saves and brings people to himself. He is in complete control. He's chosen people before the creation of the world and then uses the gospel to open their eyes and give them eternal life. And so knowing that God is sovereign over salvation means not only that we can, but that we must persevere. We see this in verse 51. As the persecution has increased to the point where they're driven out of the region, they shake the dust of their feet as a warning to those who have rejected the gospel. Then they move on to another town. So they warn people in love, then they keep going and are even joyful. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I think verse 52 is a bit of a tragic irony. Uh, The disciples are filled with joy as they face opposition, but also see God save people. Yet how often do we think we are preserving our joy as Christians by not speaking? Joy does not come to us as we cling to our comfort and avoid anything difficult, but as we throw ourselves into God's service and see his faithfulness. And so as we see the honest evangelism of Acts 13, the opportunity taken, the message proclaimed, the application clarified, and the mixed responses we should expect, we should then honestly reflect on where we are at. Now, some of the questions we should ask ourselves are pretty straightforward. Are opportunities to speak about Jesus something you fear or long and pray for? Are you deepening your understanding of the Bible so you can speak clearly and faithfully from God's word? Are you working on this by having gospel conversations with other Christians? It's why sharing our testimony or asking to hear others is so helpful for us. Are you clear on the implications of the gospel so that you will take them seriously and speak to people? And do you have right expectations? Acts wants us to be realistic about the mixed response. We'll see. (laughs) Yet how often, how often do we only focus on one of them, opposition and cost, and then let it be the reason we are silent? Uh, I heard the story recently of a guy named Ben. He worked in an office in the city, and he longed to share Jesus with his colleagues, uh, but he was terrified at the thought of it, and he was not good with his words. So he mustered up the courage to ask a colleague uh, that he'd been chatting with if he would like to come and watch a live meeting of the well-known Billy Graham. Uh, To his great surprise, he said yes, uh, and he came to Ben's house to watch it. Uh, As the meeting started, he instantly regretted it. Uh, It was towards the end of Billy's ministry as he was getting older, and he'd lost a bit of his flair and fluency. He stuttered a bit, he lost a sentence or two and for an hour Ben just sat there uncomfortable and terrified of what he thought would follow. Uh, as the meeting came to an end, Billy Graham did what he's well known for. He invited people to respond. As Ben sat there, he was getting ready to promptly turn it off and change the subject. But to his surprise, the colleague he'd invited got out of his chair knelt down in the middle of Ben's lounge room, and then prayed out loud as Billy Graham led him. I think it's so confronting how easily we let our fears and insecurities, what we hear or see in our culture, shape or even suffocate our view of the gospel and God's ability to save or even use us. So let's let Acts 13 refresh, challenge, and recalibrate us. Take the opportunity to honestly reflect. Are you ready and willing to speak? And if not, why? Is it distorted loves like comfort or your reputation? Is it a fear of others or just a lack of love? Honestly reflect and pray. Ask God to rebuke change and grow you to give a, you to give you a bigger view of eternity salvation judgment and his ability to use you with the opportunities he's given you in the place he's put you in pray that you'd see the gospel rightly and joyfully proclaim it that you'd be able to say with Paul i am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel that saves. We thank you that it saved us. And we pray now that you'd work powerfully by your Holy Spirit to encourage and grow us, to rebuke and change us, Father, please give us a love for the lost and a confidence in your word. And we ask that in your great kindness you might save many and that you might work through us to that end for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.